But I'm reading for you this morning from Romans chapter 1, verse 16, 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. You know, the gospel is nothing for us to be ashamed of. It is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This morning we've come together to hear the word of God and I believe that shame is going to be broken off of your life this morning. You're going to have a fresh passion for the power of God being released through your life, through your ministry, a fresh hunger to share the word of God with people around you. It's our time to begin to embrace and love the gospel with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength. I believe sincerely that God is looking for a people who would love the gospel. In fact, it's the key issue of our time, a key issue that will define us as a church and God's place for us in his plan in this century. Will we love the gospel? Will we love what Jesus has done for us on that cross 2,000 years ago? Will it become our burning passion? Will it be everything that we live for on a daily basis? Now this morning I want to share with you out of uh, a title, The Gospel, Everything Comes to Life. If we could just bow our heads in prayer. Lord, this morning we come to you. We are hungry to receive of your word. Lord, let the entrance of your word bring forth light in us. Lord, let it bring transformation. Lord, let it awaken hope in us. Lord, let it bring everything to life around us. And Lord, we pray, Father, that we would genuinely, genuinely learn to love the gospel in a way that changes the whole trajectory of who we are and what we're doing individually and corporately in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Now this morning, I want to start out with a, a little detour, but the detour is going to set us up for all the content that I want to cover this morning. Have you ever heard of the phrase disruptive innovation? And if you give me a wave, well, you get a free education here at Kensington Temple this morning. Uh, parents, for those of you who brought your kids, thanks for bringing them today. Uh, there are some of the disruptions I'm going to mention you've got to be up to speed on because your kids are going to know more about them than you in just a minute. We're not going to overcomplicate things. But to give you a basic context, a disruptive innovation creates a new market by providing a different set of values which ultimately overtake an existing market. That's an official definition. This is something that's usually used to uh, describe business or economics, but it can also be used to describe a disruption in complex systems such as life itself. Now, I'll, I'll unpack it for you so that we get straight into the nub practically of what this is. Uh, there are different types of innovation. There is a sustaining uh, innovation. That sustaining innovation is something that keeps something in the market. A an example of a sustaining innovation is when they change the metal handles on pots from being metal to being plastic. So that people who don't pay attention to the fact that metal conducts heat don't burn their hands. Otherwise, they'd stop using a uh, metal pot. Now, all of you moms and ladies, you know well <laughs> not to hold on to the handle of a metal pan. An evolutionary innovation. Now, I don't know if any of you follow sport, but it used to be that rugby players used to wear these really loose baggy tops, but now they've got these ultra tight tops that two people have to help squeeze you into. You know what that's for? It's so that it makes it more difficult to tackle the rugby player. Ladies, it, it wasn't for you to admire the men as they're playing rugby. 
but a revolutionary innovation is something that begins to change something, but it doesn't necessarily catalyze a total change. An example would be the invention of the car. When the car was first made, it was an exclusive item. Only the ultra-rich could afford to buy a car. Where the car became a disruptive innovation was when Ford made their Model T and made it at a price that everybody could get into the market and buy a car. And from that point on, the market for horses and trains began to decline. The key thing about a disruption, it's a great idea that fundamentally changes the way that we live. It replaces the old way entirely with a new way. It kills off the previous mechanism, rendering it obsolete. In fact, it, its aim is to bring about a new world. For example, how many of you this morning read a paper paper? Paper newspaper. How many of you go to your app and just flick the headlines? How many of you go to Facebook and pick what people have shared? Now, that's the reason that fake news is spreading all over the world today, because the disruption of apps and technology have moved us away from the traditions of pen and paper. Let me just give you a, a few more examples. An innovation would be a, a two gig hard drive and a laptop, and then you being able to get a two terabyte hard drive and a laptop. You can suddenly store everything that you own there. That's, a, that's a, a, an evolution. Facebook to Instagram, um, that's an evolution. It's just making it easier for people to share photos. There are also innovations that don't work, such as 3D TVs. Did you know that you could get a TV where you put on the glasses and see the images in 3D? Do you know you can't buy those anymore because they're a failed innovation? Perhaps they were an idea before their time. They're innovations as we would know them, but what about disruptions? This is a disruption. Not the fact that it's a prophecy study Bible, but that it's a printed Bible in English. That is a disruption. Why? Because what it does is take the Word of God away from those that were exclusive and elite in terms of power over the Bible, people who could read Latin, those who were priests and, and monks and so on, and puts it in, ha in the hands of you and I so that we can read the Bible for ourselves and understand God's Word to us today. That disruption changes the entirety of the relationship that you can have with God. An electric car would be a disruption because it undermines and does away with the whole concept of petrol cars. Now, there are issues. Does an electric car go far enough? Are there enough charging points? How quick is the charging time? And all of that kind of thing to sort out. But that disruption will certainly change the way that we travel. Or more historically, uh, commuter planes replacing cruise ships. Did you ever think about this? The home washing machine. The home washing machine was an innovation, a disruptive innovation. Why? Because it changed the fact that people used to gather commonly to wash their clothes and their items, be it in the laundromat or before that in the river. It changed this context into places where we would decentralize and put washing machines in every single home. There is a, another incredible innovation we see, the onset of computers. I don't know if any of you have seen the movie Hidden Figures. Hidden Figures is an incredible movie about three influential black women in the USA who are working for NASA. And what was just fascinating me was they were calling these ladies computers because they would literally go and enter all of the calculations into a computer, an on-table calculator, and figure the numbers out. And they would have literally hundreds of women computing equations. 
But what we saw in this context was this amazing disruption where this computer was being brought in and how these ladies particularly navigated role obsolescence, racial prejudice, in order to be involved in putting a man on the moon. Incredible times shown in that movie, Hidden Figures. Do go watch it. I'm sure there must be some Christian behind some of the content in there. Great, great movie. What about email killing off snail mail? Any of you caught up with email yet? Every one of you caught up with email? Have you, some of you still snail mail? So, you know, the old style where you used to write? Well, for those of you who are still snail mailers and you've got kids, uh, I want to encourage you to give them an education. They're growing up on computers, so please at home introduce them to this. It's called a pen. We used to use it with paper. But social media is one of those great disruptions. So Amazon disrupting the distribution model so you can just click and buy TVs. I saw this uh, uh, interesting thing that happened with TVs. You know how we used to uh, have to rush home at a particular time to be able to watch a particular program so that you could talk about it next week with your friends? When we used to watch Friends on Friday night so that you could talk about it on Monday. Or for those of you who love the EastEnders, Coronation Street, all of that kind of thing. You had to be disciplined about getting home to watch that particular program so you could participate. And then, of course, there was video recording so you could record it and watch it later, but still had to do it before the time the next uh, week when you met up with your friends. But as you know, recently I was able to make some TV programs and on TBN, and it was fascinating because the guests that I had on the show didn't even go at the registered times to go watch the program. I said to them, why did you do that? Oh, I was waiting for YouTube. It comes out on YouTube. And so no longer do we think about setting ourselves according to particular times or particular agendas. We do things when we want because the, our practices have been so disrupted. Now, just to get you a bit more involved in this, I want you to call out disruption or innovation, okay, to each one of these items. Home phone to mobile phone. Why is it a disruption? Because you can never go anywhere alone ever again. <laughs> Do you remember the time when you used to have to say to your friend, I will call you on Thursday at 3 o'clock, and then you had to make sure you're at home to get the, the call on the home line? What about moving from Nokia to iPhone? That's a disruption because you're moving from a phone to a computer in your pocket. What about shifting from Galaxy to iPhone? Innovation. <laughs> hey. CDs to iTunes. Again, a disruption. You no, need, no longer need to go shopping. Finding your new boyfriend on a Christian online speed dating platform. <laughs> Innovation, when he proposes to you, disruption, amen. <laughs> You're getting the hang of things. <laughs> but when you bring these two together, disruptive innovations, you are trying to create a new world. And I pray this morning that God would give you business ideas that would be heavenly ways of bringing about a new world here on earth. But you see, these technical changes, they meet needs and they often have unforeseen consequences. I highlighted before the issue of um, communal washing to personalized washing machines. What did that mean? The weekly intimacy of community as people gather to talk in the time when their clothes are washing. 
has been done away with. No longer do we gather in communities to do certain particular practices. TVs took people off having conversations with friends to having time spent with a screen. Plastic, literally seismic in its impact. Did you know that people used to use glass bottles to hold their shampoo? Can you imagine that? Trying to hold on to a glass bottle while your hands are soapy in the shower. Can you imagine how many bottles fell on the, in the bath and of course ceramic smash it and you're trying to dance around in the shower, not get your feet cut. Plastic was a revelation because it meant that people weren't going to hospital with sliced up feet anymore. But what it means for us today, the impact that is far reaching that we have no real um, knowledge about is the waste that fills our world today. Did you know in the Pacific Ocean there is an area as big as France filled with plastic? Just caught in the eddy, the way that the current flows around. As big as France, it's called the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. These innovations have unforeseen consequences. I want to share two more with you before we actually get into the scriptures. One. WhatsApp. WhatsApp was an amazing innovation on text message. Why? Because everyone was figuring out that text messages weren't working. You'd send a text and people would be like, what? What did you mean by that? What was your tone? How, what are you trying to say to me? And so instead of just being able to send a text message, you could then record an, a lovely little audio note or a lovely video and send that to people all around the world. It's been great to keep in touch with our relatives in New Zealand because they're not able to spend so much time over here by sending them all of the WhatsApp videos of our kids. But you see, the thing with that is, it's not dialogue. As amazing as that technology is, it's relationship on our terms. We interact when we want, how we want. We don't interact face-to-face, voice-to-voice. And the challenge of that innovation is, though it's supposed to bring people closer together, people are lonelier than ever. The illusion of advancement tricks the mind, but it can't trick the heart. The edifices we build cannot work because they function within a broken world where the changes are all around us, but nothing changes within us. The only way that we can truly disrupt the world is the breaking in of the kingdom of God. Last piece to bring us into the gospel. Instagram. Any of you got Instagram accounts? Judging by your hands earlier, not so many. A few, a few of you in here have got your Instagram accounts. Just to explain it for all of us, Instagram is a place where you can take a photo and then share it with a network or you can share it publicly and your friends can see just that photo. Where it's different to Facebook is it's just photos, nothing else. So you get images of people. But there are these amazing people that you see on Instagram and they have always got exactly the same smile. <laughs> so you see them looking great at a hol- on holiday, on a party. Uh, maybe they're dancing around. And they always catch that exact perfect smile, even when they've had a baby. <laughs> Hashtag Kate Middleton. But what if you're having a really, really bad day? I've seen people that are having such bad days, maybe they're at home and they're talking to a friend and they're like, you know what, life really is bad for me right now, I just got fired from my, jo- from my job. And then their friend, friend grabs and comes alongside them and says, hey, Instagram selfie, I hate you, 
Why did you make me do that? I'm trying to tell you that I just lost my job. And you see, the instant training, Instagram is watching. Let me make sure I got my lovely face on, even though I'm in the middle of a very broken situation right now. The Insta smile. We've trained ourselves to show the world that we're living a dream that we wish they would wish that they could have, but really we're broken on the inside. If we could cultivate the same discipline to flick into God's presence and God's goodness, the same way that person flicked into the smile that was ready for Instagram. When we face challenge, when we face difficulty, to flick into thinking, you know what, right now is a moment when I need to delve into the presence of God. Right now is when I need to orientate my heart towards him. I don't want to put on an external thing. I want to adopt an internal position which reflects my openness to receiving from the Lord. And cultivating that heart is centered around setting our heart and affection on the gospel. John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Taking time to sit down regularly, more than you would spend time on your Instagram or social media account. Taking time to dwell on this, not just read your word or not just pray and do a lot of activities around, but to sit and to focus our hearts in on the gospel. The gospel is at its core this, that Jesus lived, Jesus died upon the cross for you and for me. But much more than just dying on the cross, Jesus was raised from the dead three days later. And in his resurrection, we see encoded the new world that we dream about. The life that we desire to live. The gospel brings about the opportunity and possibility of a total new world. Not someday in heaven after we died, but a total new world here today as we adopt this disruptive innovation. And in cultivating a love for Jesus and saying, Lord, you know, I am actually so grateful that you would go to the cross for me. If you've not understood that we need to be grateful about the cross, you've not understood the cost of the cross. If we've not understood how much that this is the key factor, the central piece for the Father. The Father so loved us that he sent his Son so that he would die for us. It's that one moment that distinguishes the Father in every other regard because in that moment he had to give up that which he loves the most, his Son Jesus Christ. The love of the gospel should become the core of the way that we think and live, the way that we react. And I want to encourage and challenge you early adopters here this evening, uh, this morning. It feels like evening already in my mind. Uh, I've been up so long. Uh, I want to encourage you early adopters. Don't just sit and be Christians, but love God and be Christians in the world around us. Love his gospel message. Albert Einstein said this. The world as we have created is a process of our thinking. It cannot be changed without changing our thinking. This loving the gospel isn't just a case of, yes, Gabriel, that was a great message. I love the fact that you said that we should love what Jesus did for us. You know, that's so true. But it involves us actually digging in and breaking the mindsets and habits that we have constructed over a lifetime that precede and preclude love for the gospel. 
Maybe it's habits about how we spend our time at home, habits about how we spend our time at work, habits about how we talk to our loved ones, habits about how we build relationship or reject relationship. These are habits that we cultivate that need to be torn down and it all begins in changing the way that we think. Dealing with our minds, adopting the values of the kingdom of God. The place where the disruption is going to start is in the way that we think and the way we approach and then the values that we adopt as a consequence. Colossians 3 says this, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For if you have died, your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory. Set your mind on things above. When I realize that my mind is in the gutter, when I realize that my mind is set on getting even, when I realize that my mind is set on defending my own pride, when I realize that I'm just trying to survive, get through my own strength, when I realize that I'm trying my hardest to maintain an image, the light needs to start going off. Is my mind set upon things that are above? Paul puts it like this, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed, that word is significant, conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, conformed and transformed, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's look at this word together, conformed. Conformed is like me innovating. Conformed is like me trying to get better flesh, trying to upgrade the options, trying to have a knowledge without power, trying to have an image without substance, trying to have a network without relationship, trying to lose weight while eating McDonald's, trying to stay productive while staying awake on coffee and stimulants rather than sleeping well. All of these are feeding the flesh, indulging the flesh. But there's one thing I can't get away from explaining why the impossible is still impossible. Transformed. Conformed is staying on the same line but just getting better. Transformed is going over to the other side and adopting a totally different point of view. Transformed by the renewing of your mind is the disruption. Living life in the spirit is the disruption. God's life breaking in in me. My little meets his yes, my can't meets his can, my impossible meets his possible. That's the disruption of the kingdom of God. I need my thinking to be disrupted. We need our thinking to be disrupted, to adopt a whole new set of values and see that flesh is obsolete. There's a word that was in that first verse that I read. I am not ashamed of the gospel. This will illustrate the point. See, shame is down to a dysfunctional understanding of where you are in the gospel. Shame is about believing that you are still on the side of flesh. Shame is a function of the world's system. The world exists to make you feel shame. Look how well they're doing. Look how bad you're doing. But we need to be disrupted in our thinking. We need to be transformed. We need to leave shame on the side of the flesh and enter into the life of the spirit. The unashamed are those that recognize that the gospel has literally transitioned me from that which I was conformed to, so that's what I'm being transformed into. 
It's that which separates us from the old and brings us into the new. You know what it should read? I am not ashamed of the gospel because there's no reason for me to be ashamed. I'm out of that. I'm in a new life in Christ. Actually, the gospel is the greatest cause for confidence for every single one of us. And I want to challenge you to move beyond being unashamed to loving the gospel, to it being the very core of the way that we make decisions. And so this morning, I have four values for you to consider as we transition, as we are transformed, as we leave behind the flesh and walk in the spirit. You know these well, but I want to encourage you to love them deeper. The first is radical love. Greater love has no one than this, and that he lay down his life for his friends. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase, there's a God-shaped hole inside of all of us. I used to hear people say that to me when I was a non-Christian, and I used to think, you're crazy. What rubbish are you talking? God-shaped hole. There's a hole inside of me, it's called my stomach, and I need to fill it right now. But I don't know what you're talking about with this God-shaped hole. But post-conversion, I realized that this is the most disruptive thinking ever, totally wrecking my world, wrecking a world that was centered around alcohol and violence and hatred of other people, when I've realized that I was a son of God. The spirit breaking into my life so changed me on the inside. You are a son. You're a daughter of God. The moment that revelation hits home, that's the moment that impossible becomes possible. You can live an entirely new life knowing that you've been adopted by the living God. The second value of the disruptive innovation of the gospel is radical forgiveness. Matthew chapter 6, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors right at the core of the Lord's prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Is that a disruption or is that an innovation? It's a disruption. Because let me tell you, your broken relationship... The parents that you haven't talked to in years, the kids that you no longer have a relationship with, the uncle that you dis, uh, disconnected from because of how he handled the inheritance. You trying to see them at Christmas time rather than not see them is just a sustaining innovation. The disruption is when we recognize that this is never going to change without me forgiving radically. This is never going to become a new world without me adopting the radical approach of Jesus to radically forgive the person that has offended me. And as far as Jesus is concerned, if you know him, if you know Jesus, then you have to take the lead on forgiveness. There is no one else who can take the lead on forgiveness. When they come and say sorry, when they adjust their attitude, when they stop coming and mucking up our family reunions, when they start doing honest business, no, it's nothing to do with them, it's all to do with you. When you learn how to forgive radically like Jesus calls us to forgive, can you imagine the whole new world of relationship and therefore possibility that comes out of radical forgiveness? New marriages. If you're hitting 30, 40, 50 years, let me tell you a lesson I know at five years and you need to remember. You need to radically forgive. Silence. Silence. 
Ouch. You need to radically forgive. You know them better than anyone else. You know what they're going to say before they've even said it. You know what they're going to do before they've even done it. Until they start running off secretly and doing things behind your back. And then you begin to regret. Why did I not forgive? Why have I committed myself to a broken world where I've had hatred at the core of the most important relationship in my life? You've got to forgive and you've got to forgive radically. There are new business opportunities out there, new communities to be formed when you learn how to radically forgive the people that have let you down the most. It's not going to be easy. There are people that you will be thinking of right now and you'll think how hard it is to pick up the phone to that person. But we need to embrace a radical kind of forgiveness that reflects the forgiveness that God has given to us. Third value at the core of this disruptive innovation called the gospel, radical esteem. Radical esteem. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, as according to to the promise. Galatians 3, 25 through 29 there. Have you sat and thought about those words? Have you digested what is happening in this presentation of the implications of the gospel? There is now no Jew nor Greek. That's racial division. There is now no male, female. That's gender prejudice. There is now neither slave nor free. That's hierarchical, economical subjugation. Doesn't say anything about politics there, but we need to put politics there as well. Politics should never separate Christians, never divide who we are under the Lord. It should never drive how we relate to one another. The first thing first should be we love God and then we love one another. Now I've got a, a personal testimony to this. You should hopefully pick this up from my name, Gabriel Chan. You listen to my accent, you wonder where in heaven's name is he from? I don't even know. But I'm half Chinese, half English. Though actually last year I found out that English bit is actually Irish, Scottish, not at all English. <laughs> so <laughs> that's why I say I don't know where I am. But I was born to two different parents from different nations. I grew up in Hong Kong. Now, there's a lot of us in Hong Kong, but you see, the, the Chinese don't accept us, and neither do the English. The Chinese think that we're mixed race, and the English think that we're Chinese. And so whichever way you go, it doesn't work. You try to speak Chinese, and they look at you thinking, why is this Englishman speaking Chinese to me? When I speak English, they think, why is this Englishman expecting me to speak English? It's one of those confusing things. And all my life, I've had people not accept who I am from a racial perspective. They see the Chan, but they assume that it was some sort of adopted name, not the fact that I've got half Chinese blood in, my, in me. There was all sorts of challenges around opportunities and so on. And I don't know if you face racial prejudice or not, but the God who created Adam 
is the God who, through his sovereignty, introduced the great diversity that is every nation here under the sun. Before God, you are all his children. Before God, you are all reflections and celebrations of who he is as the living God. And if only we would see that the gospel of Jesus Christ permanently disrupts all of these divisions that we have. This is not about making everybody equal because equal can just be taken to be a homogenizing word. Equal and unique. Equal in that we are all humanity unique in the great ways that each one of us has been gifted by God and reflects his glory. Each an opportunity to live for his majesty and say, wow, what an awesome creator we serve. And that's one of the great privileges of being part of Kensington Temple. That's who we are as Kensington Temple. 119 nationalities gathered together to celebrate Jesus Christ together. It's been such a privilege to learn about all of the different cultures and to eat all of the different foods and to try to learn all the different languages. Just uh, the other week, I was able to marry my friends, one Kenyan, one Ugandan. I had to learn a bit of both of the languages to speak at their wedding. Congratulations, James and Patricia. By the way, it's great to have you here. But what about seeing women empowered? That's what this verse talks to, that women can be disciples of Jesus just as much as men can. Women are equally gifted, if not more uniquely gifted in many ways than men are. Fellas, you need to start looking at the women around you differently. Don't just look at what you see on the outside, though they've made a great effort today. But look also at what you see on the inside. Look at those amazing gifts that have been given by God that speak to the person that reflects the glory of God in their life. Seeing men actually rising up in ministry in the church, not just sitting... Wife dragged me in. Get me a coffee, stay away. No, actually engaging in this passionate thing called the gospel of Jesus Christ. Men, you are dignified in the way that you edify. Don't sit there just crossing your arms and looking down on everyone else. Think about how you can build up your brother, your sister, how you can identify their race and celebrate their race, how you can identify their station in life and celebrate their station in life because we all have that opportunity to glorify Christ through who we are. And then the fourth one, and this is a challenging one. Come back to the verse. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. For salvation to everyone who believes. Where are you leaning into the power of God? This is perhaps a place where the most offense happens because we get on our knees and we cry out to God for somebody to be healed. We cry out to God for someone to be saved. And as far as we have seen, there is no evidence for that or perhaps it even goes so far as for them to pass on. Where are we leaning into the power that is available in the gospel of Jesus Christ? As part of KT, it's been a privilege to personally and corporately see incredible miracles, to see cancers go into remission, to see new teeth, to see broken bones be healed, to see blind eyes open, to hear, have deaf ears open, to see people get out of wheelchairs. I've been around and been involved in all of those kind of miracles. I firmly believe in the transformative power of the kingdom of God. But there are times when we need to be provoked to faith provoked to cry out afresh, God, where is your power? And not to be disillusioned where we have not seen the power of God manifest previously. You know, one of the great privileges that I have as a minister, and I never anticipated this, 
becoming a minister is that not only do I get to celebrate weddings, but I get to be there for families when they lose loved ones. And at times when you sit with a family who have lost a loved one quickly or slowly, and you get to encourage them and remind them of that which matters the most, the wonderful promise that the resurrection and the eternal life that is available in the gospel is for them. It's an amazing privilege. I've been shocked and awed by some of the responses I've seen. A, a young mum with a nine-year-old and a six-year-old looking back at me saying, you know what, God has been so good to me. My husband got saved two years before he died. He got baptized two months before he passed away. I know that God gave me my husband back. I know that I will see him in heaven. And it's a great privilege to be there to remind of the implication of the gospel in that context. But I don't know if you know about one of our children's leaders, Jide, and you might have a personal friend or family member who right now is going through cancer. A much loved member of our kids' ministry, Jide, has served faithfully and is serving faithfully. Went to see him in hospital just the other day, and he is not the man he was. The cancer is eating away at his body. And it's those moments, those moments, when you've got to get to your knees and start to cry a radical new kind of prayer, to be provoked back to praying in the way that this verse challenges us to pray. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. God, I need to see your power manifested in Jude's body. God, I need to see your power manifested in the church. God, I need to see your power manifested when it comes to cancer. No longer should cancer reign. No longer should it be a death sentence, particularly in the church. Now, we celebrate all that medical profession does. They do amazing things, powered, empowered by the Spirit of God working through their hands. We thank all of you doctors and nurses here in the church. But the power of God is the only answer when you look at someone like G-Day's situation. Amen? And it's those sorts of things that have got to provoke us back. Rather than taking the route back to leaving aside this most radical innovation called the gospel, we've got to say, God, the implications of the gospel change lives. The implications of the gospel will bring radical transformation, salvation, healing, restoration of relationships. But in this context, defeat of death. We want to see the power of God moving in a situation to defeat death. Now, are we provoked by that? Because that's what will cause us to love what Jesus has done more than anything else. Literally, the resurrection power of Jesus is not just for that day when we die and are raised to face him and face his good judgment for us. But his power of resurrection is available for us today. For those that are on death's doorstep, for those that have passed on, we want to pray for the power of God to be manifest in their life and in your life. Your loved ones, the people that mean the most to you, the people that you're worried about right now, the people that you're concerned for, we need to look to the cross. And this morning, I want to challenge you to come and stand to your feet. And for a few moments, begin to say, Lord, let that gospel reign in me. Let what you did at the cross reign in me. Let it change the way that I think. Let me not just be challenged by a, a sermon on a Sunday, but let me become a person that wants to wrestle with God and be provoked in prayer to see the answers to prayer. To see cancer defeated, I would love it that when people cross the doorstep, as soon as they get to the top of the stairs, they might come in a, a hospital bed, they might come in a wheelchair, they're experiencing the power of God already. 
They're already beginning to itch to step out of that wheelchair. They're already feeling the life of blood, lifeblood of God flowing through their veins, beginning to rise up again. Church, shall we stand together and shall we start to pray? Should we start to pray that God would do something in our hearts? Should we start to pray that the gospel would so consume us that we would see transformation around us? Heavenly Father, let's lift our voices. We come to you this morning. And Lord, we believe in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We believe in the power of God to save. And Lord, we believe in the power of God to heal. And Father, we are provoked this morning. Lord. We have no reason to be ashamed, but let us not be ashamed. We have no reason to doubt, let us not doubt. Lord, let us press in and let us become people that are so consumed by the gospel of Jesus Christ that we would have faith for such things.